Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, moving from manpower as a service to something newer. We kind of realized that that's a 20th century technique and we're trying to move, uh, you know, our utility and our sampling program in a, in a, uh, in a more technology-driven uh, uh, trajectory. And technology isn't the focus for this CIO. All those other technologies that you mentioned, all those other kind of things that CIOs get tagged to focus on, I think that's the boring part because we have to do that anyway, right? But we don't do it for the sake of doing it. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world and learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. New York State has a new Chief Information Security Officer. Chris DeSane is the new cyber lead for the Empire State. He comes to the post after working as the director of the Cyber Incident Response Team at the state's counterterrorism office. Bitcoin has lost half of its value in the months since Miami Mayor Francis Suarez made public the city's attempts to capitalize on cryptocurrency through a partnership with CityCoins. In that time frame, some cities have announced plans to step away from exploring and investing in crypto, while others are diving in headfirst. Low or no-code software development made big waves during the pandemic, but now advocates for the approach are calling on leaders to be cautious about security vulnerabilities and shadow IT. Now, officials are saying it's not necessarily the future of state and local IT, but just another tool in the tool chest. You can read these stories and more at statescoop.com. You'll also find links in today's show notes. There, you can also find Statescoop's new special report on emerging technology, which chronicles how state and local IT leaders are approaching new technology in a positive and negative way. Cincinnati's sewer and wastewater agency is looking to bring their operations into not just the modern era, but into one that's right on the edge of emerging. The Metropolitan Sewer District of Greater Cincinnati is piloting a sensor to collect data from wastewater that replaces a manual process. The effort is in its very early stages, but there are some massive potential benefits ahead, including more widespread detection of the presence of COVID-19 in sewage. Scott Bessler, the sewer district's assistant superintendent, tells State Soup's Colin Wood how that work got underway and what's coming next. Right now, uh, we use manpower uh, as a technology. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, we have a, a big sampling crew of a couple of folks that go out with uh, the ISCO style samplers, the backpack samplers, and uh, block off traffic, pull up manholes, uh, you know, put, put, put the sampler tubing down in there, block traffic, uh, have to sit there while they take the sample. Uh, so it's fair, fairly labor-intensive, right, uh, at this point. Um, and then, you know, we kind of realize that that's a 20th century technique and we're trying to move, uh, you know, our utility and our sampling program in a, in a, uh, in a more technology-driven uh, uh, trajectory. And so we started exploring different types of sampling, um, you know, opportunities and companies that were out there that had innovative solutions and, uh, a guy that works in my group got hooked up with Kandu at a conference uh, at Israel, and he came back and told us about this cool technology. And uh, here we sit, you know, we're 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 trying their stuff out. We're very early uh, in, you know, a pilot on the wastewater quality side. We only have one of their samplers installed right now, but uh, uh, and it, I think it's only been in for about two weeks. So I don't even, I think there's been one sample collected at this point. We really don't have any data or anything like that yet. I see. Uh, but I'm excited about the, the, the possibility of it, right? 
right. from what I've seen, where they could what what they've done elsewhere. Right. So, uh, yes, yeah, could you speak a little more to that? What is what have you seen them do elsewhere, and what what are you you know if if things pan out, you know best case scenario, what are you hoping to see happen? Yeah. So you know they they are a fairly well known company, and in, in, uh, in obviously in their their home country of. Israel, they have uh, an incredible uh, array of sensors there that has been used for wastewater quality stuff, but it's also been used for wastewater-based epidemiology stuff. Uh, so those are kind of the two worlds that uh, we're considering, you know, their capacity in. But they have some other folks that use their equipment in the United States. I think the city of El Paso is one that I remember that has a, uh, some of their sensors uh, that are installed in their wastewater collection system. So that's Essentially, what we're trying to do is, is kind of mo not model it after what El Paso does, but uh, uh, have a similar setup. You know, where there's a number of different samplers that can be moved around uh, out in our collection system uh, that you know have that sensor array that tells you the information about the wastewater quality that then triggers the auto sampler to take a sample. Uh, so we want to use it to increase our sampling capacity uh, to be able to take more samples, uh, and also uh, you know. We kind of sample on a somewhat regular schedule with the way we do it right now with our manpower-based technology. Uh, we want to be able to catch the folks that are probably thinking, oh, MSD's not out sampling at, uh, you know, 8.30 at night on a Sunday. We can dump this stuff now, right? So we'll be able to kind of shore up what's going on in our collection system uh, through, th hopefully through their technology um, and, you know, help us to operate a more compliant uh, c collection system and, and treatment plan. So is your main goal with something like this to catch people who are dumping stuff that they shouldn't? So, no, I wouldn't say that. That's not that's one of the goals. Uh, I think the main goal is to really bring, like I said, bring our, our, our sampling crew into the 21st century. Uh, you know, we're kind of doing it in an antiquated way. So that's kind of the first step that we wanted to take was to be able to increase our footprint. That's number one. Um, use innovative technologies. That's number two. Uh, get a better handle on uh, the, the wastewater quality that's in different areas in our collection system. That's also very important. You know, that sensor array that they throw in there that tells you all the uh, wastewater kind of measurement parameters that you're looking for, pH, you know, uh, conductivity, things like that, uh, temperature, um, you know, that'll give us a better understanding of what's going on out in our collection system, uh, which sometimes overflows during heavy rains. So, like, you know, we may be able to infer from some of the information, uh, you know, us, if we're capturing that combined sewer overflow, we're keeping that stuff from entering surface waters, right? So we have a we have a whole whole group here that everything that they do is try to keep the water inside the pipes <laughs> right before it gets to a treatment plant. Um, so like the way that you could make those kind of two things talk together, I think, is a a neat thing that could come out of this. But that is probably really far down the line. Hmm. Okay. What about? Uh, I know one of the things Condo does is tries to monitor for virus. Is that something that your department does? So we don't have anything 
in writing yet that it's going to happen, but we are discussing a pilot with Kondu to uh, understand at a at a spatial resolution finer than our treatment plants, which right now we monitor for COVID-19 at four of our wastewater treatment plants. We have nine altogether, but we monitor four of them, basically the largest four that we have that could cover the most people. Hmm. Uh, we want to get a, because one most of those sewer sheds are really, really big, right? They encompass a number of different neighborhoods. Maybe even the largest one goes into a different county. Um, you know, so it's a huge surface area. But what we want to do is drill down a little further into those sewer sheds and understand uh, what might be going on at a smaller sewer shed within that larger one. Right. So what do you do if you find, I don't know, a high level of virus or how is how is that information used? Yeah. So right now uh, that inf so what, what we do is we are just the samplers. Uh, we take a sample at the influent of our wastewater treatment plants twice a week that then gets sent via uh, courier to the Ohio Department of Health's lab in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. So we are feeding them samples that are then in that lab in Reynoldsburg, that's run by the Ohio Department of Health, analyzed for COVID-19. Uh, that analysis is then, uh, what would you call it? it it's then, poor, it, that number for that sample, um, how much COVID is, put into a state level dashboard uh, that is actually really neat. Uh, if you've never seen it, it's one of the, I think one of the best ones in the country. Uh, but I think there's 80 wastewater treatment plants that are sampled somewhere in there across the state of Ohio. So it's a really robust state level wastewater, uh, epidemiology program. Um, and then that information is put out to the public, uh, so they can make decisions based upon, you know, what's going on in their sewer shed. Like you might see, oh, I live me personally, most of the city of Cincinnati is in the Mill Creek sewer shed. I live there. If I see those numbers are substantially increasing in, of the gene copies per liter, uh, you know, I might make a personal decision to, if I'm going out to dinner to put a mask on or something like that, right? Mm. Um, so I don't know that everybody makes decisions based upon it, but uh, there are people that do, you know, and I get questions from citizens about kind of what we're doing about it. And I walk them through the exact thing that I'm walking through you through now. <laughs> right. So how yeah. long, how long have you been doing that? So we started here actually as a collaboration with uh, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, who has a huge research lab here. We started in March, 2020. So oh. we have a really long term data set from four of our plants, which is pretty awesome, I think. Yeah, you guys, I mean, I don't know this to a certainty, but you must have been one of the earlier adopters of that. Because I, yeah. I remember being surprised hearing about that kind of monitoring, I don't know, November, December 2020, something like that. Right. Yeah, we were we were kind of the guinea pigs, I think, at least in the world of EPA trying to do it. <laughs> right. Interesting. So have there been any challenges or things that you've learned along the way in terms of doing that kind of monitoring? Yeah, so in the beginning, the logistics of getting samples where they needed to go were really kind of hard to work out, right? It was hard to get at FedEx to pick up samples. Um, it was challenging to find couriers at that time that could come and grab samples if you couldn't get them shipped because everything was shut down, right? So mm. 
uh, ultimately, uh, that was probably the toughest part of it. But the, the way that the Ohio Department of Health has this set up now and has for a very long time is they have a really kind of robust network of couriers that uh, comes and picks up your, your, your samples. And I know in other parts of the country or other parts of the state, I think they still ship. But uh, since we're kind of far away from the lab, I think they courier down here to make sure it gets there in time so they can get the data up a day after the sample is analyzed. Having the state drive that is really valuable, I think, because it's 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 it puts a lot less on the utilities to try to figure out how to, you know, bring somebody in house that uh, might know how to run a, a qPCR machine to tell you actually how much, you know, COVID nineteen is in a wastewater sample. That's a that's a heavy lift for a wastewater utility, you know. Right, right. As what what would you say the bulk of your work looks like? I mean, are you My, guys collecting? I mean, just as a as a agency, are you guys mainly collecting payment from people, just making yeah, keep, so our, keeping all, things going? All of, yeah, all of our all of our you know we're we're a public utility. Everything we do is driven by uh, the rates that our users uh, pay. So you know we're we're not we're not making money at this. It's uh, it's a break even kind of world, but uh, you know with that rate payer money. You know, I think we should be striving to give them to give our ratepayers, you know, valuable information, right? That they can they, they that they can use, and um, this is absolutely one of those things that they can use. Scott Bessler, Assistant Superintendent for the Metropolitan Sewer District of Greater Cincinnati. You can read more about him and his wastewater work on statescoop.com as part of this month's special report on emerging tech. There are links in today's show notes. It's been almost six months since Bill Vida took over as the state CIO of Wyoming. Vida comes to the job after stints as the CIOs of the Federal Department of the Interior, as well as the state of Alaska. He's taking a different approach in his role in Wyoming, one that's not quite focused so much on technology. He tells me what he's been up to in the last six months and what's coming next. Well, so um, I think last time we talked, you were asking me, why did you go to Wyoming? (laughs) And I can tell you it's a beautiful place, very interesting culture, very interesting people a lot of interesting challenges. And uh, for people who are really familiar with the Washington scene, you know, you have a 10 by 10 square uh, where probably three quarters of all the federal government works or has a vested interest. So 10 by 10 square and uh, let's say 2 million people who are all focused on government. When you go to a place like Wyoming, uh, it's not just rural. 16, I think of the 23 counties have only six people per square mile. And so they have the same demands for government uh, as the folks do anywhere in the country or here in Washington, D.C., but they don't necessarily have the same means or tools or resources uh, to accomplish those goals. And so it's interesting as a technologist or, or somebody who's kind of a lifelong school of government, student of government, um, to really take on a challenge like that and see just, just what can we do? Just how can we solve those problems using technology to meet the expectations of people at or equal the expectations of anywhere else in the country. And so uh, first five months have been proving that out. It's a a fascinating place with fascinating challenges. Uh, We don't have to follow the same sequence as everybody else. There's some opportunities to stand on the shoulders of giants and take advantage of the good work that's going on in other places. And there's some opportunities to contribute too. Uh, a lot of the things that Wyoming is taking on uh, 
might be first and foremost in support of what the local expectations are. But some of the lessons that we're learning, I think, are universal, apply to a lot of other places too. So organizations like State Scoop, uh, organizations like NACIO give us an opportunity to share those ideas and, uh, and see what works and what doesn't work. And so uh, it's been a great five months. Yeah. So, you know, Wyoming, I, I, I've always thought it's really interesting. It has been actually one of the places that has embraced some of the emerging technology, has embraced some of the more cutting edge things before even more well-established states yeah. have. Yeah. Uh, you know, what did you see when you when you got there and you looked out across your, your landscape of what you have? What did you see and, and what did that tell you about what needed to come next? Yeah. Well, I saw a lot of people who are very dedicated, who love Wyoming, uh, who enjoy working in public service and uh, have dedicated most of their lives trying to make Wyoming better. And so I knew walking in that I had a brilliant team and that uh, uh, my job wasn't to supplant that brilliance, but to try to find a way to release it, right? To clear the, to clear the obstacles they might've been having and, uh, or facing and uh, find a way to, to enable those great ideas to come to fruition. And so I'm really proud of the folks there uh, they've made me feel quickly at home. Uh, they've given me an opportunity to reach out and learn them as I've tried to give them an opportunity to, to learn about me. And we're coming to a good equilibrium. Um, part of the reason I'm there, uh, the organization that I'm leading now has only been around for 10 years. It's one of the newest departments in Wyoming. And uh, in that 10 years, they've had a fair number of chief information officers come before me. And so, uh, you know, trying to build sustainable continuity for all those great ideas, giving them an opportunity to flourish, no matter who happens to be sitting in the chair, is, I, in my view, vitally important. So it can't just be me kind of one and done. It's got to be uh, something that the, the state embraces and that we're making plans for the person who comes behind me and the one after that. And um, in some of the places I've worked, uh, particularly with tribal governments, there's been a view that, you know, you're, you're trying to build a world for seven generations beyond you, right? You might never meet the people who, who realize the full uh, value of, of the efforts you're trying to bring, bring to fruition, but it means you're not focused on the now. You know, you're, you're focused on uh, serving the feet you might never meet. And uh, I think Wyoming em, em really embraces that. And so, uh, you know, Finding a way to build a team that can sustain that capability, that's probably my job number one. You know, and uh, so you talk about building a team, everyone has been talking, as long as we've known each other and before, yeah. about workforce and the challenges that are that are present there. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing in Wyoming, probably different than maybe uh, California or New York? Yeah. Uh, what are you seeing from a workforce perspective? Well, I think if you're in Wyoming, you want to be there. Right. And I think if you want to work in state government, you want to be there. And so uh, the challenges aren't because of the passion or dedication for the folks that we have. Uh, you know, there's always, you'll, you'll hear everybody whine about because it's, you know, an easy thing to do, you know, pay and benefits and, you know, all the rest of that kind of stuff. I honestly think that's boring. Uh, it's important, obviously. I don't mean to diminish that part. But I think people are fundamentally motivated by the satisfaction they get from their service. And, um, uh, if you don't provide an inspiration uh, that helps people feel satisfied that the way they spent the most valuable commodity they have every day uh, is validating their, their personal or professional aspirations, you've failed. 
And so the good news is a lot of those grander things that people look for in Wyoming, they're already getting a lot of that in space. Uh, the, the folks who are there love Wyoming and want to serve Wyoming. The challenges sometimes can be all those kind of more mundane things, right? And uh, I think you'll hear the same thing from a lot of other CIOs, uh, but my focus has always been kind of people first. Uh, my job is to help them realize their, their aspirations. And so if you take that, that view that the role is a more strategic, it's not tactically focused, uh, I found a lot of happy surprises, but they can't be one and done. They have to be sustainable well beyond me. And so that's probably, that's probably the biggest focus I have right now. And so, you know, if, if you're running down the, the top 10 priority list, you're thinking about what, what your colleagues across the, the government community are, are caring about and working on. I mean, cyber is always number one. Digital services crept up there in the last couple of years. Identity and access management mm -hmm. is up there as well. Uh, where does, you know, where do your priorities sort of fit in, in that scope and, and what are some of the projects you have going on? Yeah. Well, so I, I think all those technology pro priorities, they're what they are, but they're actually kind of boring to talk about. Uh, because we all have to do them. It's not like you can ignore cyber or any of the rest of that stuff. So I think you have to be masters of those domains and focus on it, but that's not really what the role is. You know, the, the role is solving problems. And it's solving problems in a way that technology facilitates the best possible outcomes. So if you take, for example, what happened during the pandemic, right? Uh, if you talk to people before the pandemic and you would ask them, how long do you think it'll take for us to move the entire organization out of the office into home, right? They would have probably said 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, not in my lifetime, you know, wouldn't have even dawned on them, right? And truth turns out, you know, the technology was immediately available and did exactly what it needed to do, right? So the only impediment to realizing that was the way people thought, right? And, and, and what their actual ability to forecast the impact of technology might be. And when you ask them after, you know, what do you think now about telework and remote work and all the rest of that stuff, their answers didn't match the prior time. And if their forecasts had been true, if, if in their cultures it, it was decades to make that jump, it means that technology happened decades before the cultural transition could be accomplished, right? That's a problem. And the problem was exclusively here. It wasn't with the technology. So if you use that as an analog to what the strategic role of any CIO is, right? You're listening to problems that people need solved. You're trying to find a way to align your contribution to what the business is first and foremost. And so you're actually in the front end of that same cycle as with the pandemic. How do we solve this business challenge? How can we do it most effectively? How can we do it most efficiently? And then helping them come to grips with the consequences of that, not just today, but into the future. And so all those other technologies that you mentioned, all those other kind of things that CIOs get tagged to focus on, I think that's the boring part because we have to do that anyway, right? But we don't do it for the sake of doing it. Don't do cyber for the sake of cyber. We don't do data management for the sake of data management. We don't do zero trust for the sake of zero trust. It has to align with that business goal. And in state government, it's the governor's policies, it's the legislative, the legislative directives, right? What, what the legislature through law wants to accomplish. And then it falls upon all of the technologists to figure out how to solve those problems. And cyber is a part of it. Data management is a part of it. 
privacy management is a part of it, zero trust is a part of it, but they aren't solutions in and of themselves. They're pieces of a puzzle that really, if you lose focus on the big picture, none of the rest of it matters. You've, you've had a couple different CIO jobs. You've been around uh, for a while mm -hmm. in this space. Uh, the job is changing, right? Yeah. How, uh, how aggressively, how fast? Yeah. And, uh, and what are you, you know, in this most recent iteration of, of this work, what do you bring into it? Yeah, well, I think the job has always kind of been like I've approached it, you know? It comes down to whoever the individual is in the chair and what motivates them, right? If you, uh, the traditionally, you, you know, you, you join an organization, you grow through the organization, you're trying to be uh, put into the highest level ranks, into the C-suite and do the rest of those kind of things. And early in my career, that model started to break down. You know, a lot of those cradle to grave incentives to, to keep people and grow them through the organization and keep them forever uh, went away. And I think in government, uh, it's probably the last place where that model is working, right? And so I had the benefit of some mentors who told me, Bill, you know, the best way to grow a career is to try to get a lot of different experience and it doesn't have to all be in the same place. You know, if you work in government, go try the vendor world a little bit. If you're working in the vendor world, go try government a little bit and, and bounce back and forth and, and do interesting things because every time you do, the chances are you're going to be more interesting the next jump you take because somebody will want to know more about government and you know more about it. Somebody will want to know more about industry and you want to do it. And so, you know, I think we're coming to the point where that kind of upper out ro rotational philosophy that maybe the military's had for a long time is becoming more relevant because every time you do that, it forces you to personally reassess your skills, reassess what the market is looking for, make sure that you're attractive to that. And um, it, it, it demands that you take more control of your career than somebody who's just kind of building up over time uh, their investment, right? And so I think that's the, the role of the CIO is really getting pushed to that kind of model because you can't always be an expert on every technology that comes out every two years. And uh, if your focus is on one organization, you're kind of plateauing your value to the rest of the marketplace. So, you know, I think getting a robust set of experience, getting a chance to try some new things, uh, doing it immersively, if you can find a way to do that, and staying connected kind of with the zeitgeist uh, of, of what the, the the problem makers are demanding from their problem solvers. That, that's probably more of where the role is headed. And it's becoming a lot less about technology and a lot more about leading people and problem solving. And, uh, you know, you might be able to do that in one place your whole career, uh, but those opportunities are shrinking. More often than not, I think uh, these days, uh, they're going to be looking for a, a more robust set of experience, more holistic view of leadership. And uh, for people who take the opportunity to, to grow in that way, I think they're going to be better off in the long run. How far away do you think we are from, say, a conference like this, all the CIOs being com almost completely non-technical in their experience? <laughs> so uh, that might be the case today, right? If you think about that logically, I mean, that certainly might be part of it. But um, I think the good CIOs, the good leaders know that it's not about technology, right? Um, when I started my career, it was about Microsoft, PC, Microsoft DOS and PCs, right? And uh, 
You know, I don't know any CIO today who's thrown in fully on MS-DOS and still has to make that their technical acumen. And so uh, technology is truly fleeting. And um, so I think at some point when uh, we find a different way to work with industry, because right now industry, we, we very heavily rely on industry for a lot of that technical work that we do. I, I think we're on the cusp of trying to find a new way to work with it. I don't think um, the way we manage risk right now reflects the actual risk we take, right? Um, the, the vendors who work with us uh, aren't, aren't necessarily as vested in the outcomes um, uh, under today's model as they'll need to be in tomorrow's. Tell me more about that risk. That's, that's an interesting well, point. So, I mean, let me, let me give you an example, right? So, uh, cybersecurity, right? Who by law do governments hold responsible for cyber issues? Usually the CIO, right? And under laws like FISMA, the CIO appoints somebody like the CISO, right? But at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, they aren't pounding on a non-state entity. They're pounding on a CIO, right? So let's say you're in a place like a state that doesn't have millions of people working, you know, on government every day. You might have hundreds of people working on government every day. So you're struggling to keep your procurement staff on board, your, your technical experts on board, your architects on board, your privacy people on board, to the point where, because you might not have enough folks under a federal model to cover all aspects of acquisition management, you actually have to put a fair amount of trust into the people you're partnering with to do the things that they're doing in support of you. Okay, well, trust is a tricky thing, right? Do you understand their basis of judgment? You certainly understand it from a financial perspective, but if they're responsible for managing a domain, what risk are they taking in the way that their, their internal management is being held accountable, right? If you're Google, how does Google manage their cybersecurity risk, right? What controls do they have internally in place in their management? What tools are they using? What data feeds are they relying on? What is their visibility of risk? That's not something they typically want to share. That's a proprietary, proprietary set of stuff that makes their business tick. But if I'm counting on them to do everything I need them to do to keep my cybersecurity safe, you would think I should know about that, right? If I were lending them money, I would want to know what they're going to use it for and what they think the risks are that they're facing. Well, okay, it's a different dynamic than just putting a contracting officer in charge and checking the boxes on traditional acquisition management. So I think the more we rely on them, to step into our shoes and to, to take on all of this technical risk, we're gonna wanna know more about their basis of judgment for doing that, even as they wanna know more about our basis of judgment for consuming it. And so I think we're on the cusp. Nasio brings it out interesting as an interesting place to have these conversations and uh, uh, pontificate, you know, and, and, and make connections. But I don't think it's just government that's changing. I think industry has to change with it. And I, I think we're at a nascent point in that discussion. I, I don't think industry fully realizes that yet. So I'm hoping maybe organizations like NSEO, like StateScoop, give us an opportunity, you know, independently of the, the rest of the, the factors that we face to start bringing out topics like that for debate. At least we should be provoking each other to have that kind of thought. Bill Vida, CIO for the state of Wyoming. You can read more about him and his approach to the role on statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes.
The Priorities Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, please leave a review or a rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people will find the show. This podcast is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helped put it together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.